0: So, my, <clears throat> I didn't really know what I was going to teach on this Sunday, as I'm substituting for Ryan here, and I went home after Sunday last week and asked Vicky, what would you teach on? She said, Psalm 99, I really like Psalm 99, so teach on Psalm 99, uh, and then she found out she's in the nursery, so she'll have to read my notes, but we are on Psalm 99, but before I read that, I want to... Uh, communicate some background to you, hopefully to uh, help you understand uh, that psalm a little better. And what I'm going to say comes from, uh, mainly from a book by Dr. Robert Godfrey called The Flow of the Psalms, which I would highly recommend if you're interested in trying to, not just understand individual psalms, but if you're trying to understand uh, the flow of the book of psalms. And I think there's an awful lot of work yet to be done that we uh, would fully understand that, but Dr. Godfrey's book is a really good step in that direction. And having said that, uh, Psalm 99 falls into book four. Most of you, maybe all of you know that the Psalms are broken up into five books. (coughs) And uh, Psalm 99 falls in kind of the center of book four, which obviously follows book three. Very profound uh, discovery that I made there. Uh, Psalm, or book three, goes from uh, Psalm 90 to, through Psalm 106. And <clears throat> it's important that we understand where it sits in the Psalms because uh, book three is largely a book dealing with the uh, fall of the Davidic dynasty as far as uh, uh, his posterity. Uh, ruling on the earthly throne, and uh, Book Three is fairly uh, full of uh, uh, what what we might call darker psalms. And in fact, uh, Psalm eighty-eight, the book or the psalm just before this last psalm in that book is one of the darkest in the Psalter. In fact, I'm not sure; uh, nobody's ever asked me to teach on it. It would be it's a difficult one that you would teach on because there's really very little hope. In Psalm 88, at least on the surface, <coughs> but uh, Psalm 89 uh, is the last book, and I want to read a, one verse out of that. Uh, psalm 89, verse uh, 49, toward the end of that psalm, and certainly toward the end of book three, verse 49 says, "Where are your former loving kindness, O Lord? Where is your former loving kindness, O Lord?" which you swore to David in your faithfulness. And I think that kind of summarizes the dismal setting that we have at the end of book four, or book three uh, in the psalm. This is probably speaking about the time where the people had rejected God, they had gone into pagan worship, Uh, they had... uh, forgot his Sabbath day, they were, uh, had forgotten his law and were mistreating each other in uh, evil, bloody ways, and the Lord brought judgment to them, first to the uh, <coughs> northern kingdom, through Assyria, and then through the, to the southern kingdom, to Babylon, and they fell, and uh, David's dynasty appeared to have fallen, there was, uh, his, his posterity was taken captive uh, to Babylon, there was nobody physically on the throne at that point. And so they ask in this psalm, what happened? What happened to David's dynasty? Have you forgotten us, Lord? Uh, What happened to your promises about uh, David's uh, sitting on the throne? And so I think book four uh, deals directly with answering that question. Uh, And book four deals with, uh, in the first couple of Psalms, 90 through 92, deals with going back to the basics God is the creator. God is the king, God has set up his covenant with us, and Psalm 92 deals with the uh, Sabbath day. And then we get into um, the psalms that we're going to, uh, the psalm that I'm going to deal with today is part of what people call the royal psalms that go from 93 to 99. <coughs> some of, some people include uh, Psalm 100 in that, but it's the royal psalms talking about the reign <coughs> of Jehovah that there is indeed a descendant of David to be sitting on the throne uh, ruling in Zion. And so um, these royal psalms that we talk about uh, give us a background of uh, God being the ruler and uh, he never has uh, been rejected off of his throne. Even though David's dynasty was in trouble, God has always been (coughs) ruling and in particular, it speaks about Jehovah reigning, and Jehovah, I, I, I won't take time to get into that today, but uh, certainly Christ is uh, equated with Jehovah in the, in the uh, New Testament. And so it's with that background, <coughs> answering that question about what happened to your promises, God, about uh, David reigning, that these royal psalms are written. And so with that background, then let's go ahead and read Psalm 99. Psalm 99. The Lord reigns, let the people tremble. He is enthroned above the cherubim, let the earth shake. The Lord is great in Zion, and he is exalted above all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The strength of the king loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests, and Samuel was among those who called on his name. They called upon the Lord, and he answered them. He spoke to them in the pillar of cloud. He kept his testimonies and the statutes he gave. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them O Lord our God, you answered them you are a forgiving God to them and yet an avenger of their evil deeds. exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy heel for holy is the Lord our God. So <clears throat> there's uh, different ways that commentators have broken the psalm up and um, I'm following what I would call maybe a a significant minority, maybe slight majority, I'm not sure, but a lot of people break the psalm up at verse 5. If you'll notice, verse 5 and verse 9 are almost identical, and so a lot of people basically say verse 5 is the division of half the psalm, uh, and the second half ends with verse 9, obviously. I don't believe that that's the best way to do it, and I'm going to try to convince you of that. I believe the psalm is focused on God's holiness, and because of his holiness, he is, we are called to worship. So, uh, as I defend the outline here, I'm also going to be teaching a fair amount about what's in the psalm. So, I want to start with verse 9. If you look at that, you'll notice the very last phrase is, For holy is the Lord our God. And the word for is uh, connecting uh, what goes per, uh, precedes it. And we are called to worship at his holy hill. Why? Because he is holy. <clears throat> and I believe that what happens in this, the structure of this psalm is that just above that, what precedes the call to worship is an example of his holiness. We'll get to that in a minute. But if you notice over again in verse 5, we see a similar structure. It said, at the end of that, it says, holy is he. And I believe that there's an implied for there connecting it uh, uh, to the earlier call, the preceding call to worship. So, worship at his footstool, implied for he is holy. And then I believe also you see that same structure in verse 3. Verse 3 ends with holy is he, and I believe there's an implied for there because he's, uh, and we're called to worship. It, even though it doesn't use the word worship, it says praise your great and awesome name, which is a call to worship, basically. So my belief is that the best way to understand the psalm is to break it up into three stanzas. The stanzas end with verse 3, holy is he. Verse 5, holy is he. And verse 9, for holy is the Lord our God. So those, I'm, that's the way I'm going to teach it. And I believe that we have a purposeful breakdown of that psalm into thrice holy stanzas, calling uh, the Lord holy three times. And the structure is we worship because he's holy. And then it, we worship, it talks about just above that, the type of holiness. And having said that, leads me into my opening comments about holiness. Uh, The word holy is honestly difficult for us to understand. It's kind of beyond our grasp. Uh, Holy is most often uh, connected with righteousness, God's righteousness, which is correct. But the problem is that it's not limited to righteousness. Holiness in itself means separate from otherness, like transcendent. Uh, he's above and beyond our comprehension. He's of another kind than his cre- creation. So it is correct to say holy righteousness, but it's not correct to limit it to holy righteousness. It's also correct to say he has holy love or he has holy wrath or he has holy rule. And I think that's what this psalm is breaking uh, is broken up into. The first Uh, Holiness is his sovereign rule, one through three. And then four and five is his holy justice or righteousness. And then six through nine is his holy mercy or graciousness and graciousness to his people. So that's the uh, structure that I'm going to follow here. and since I've talked without looking at my notes so far, I've lost my position in my notes. Um, I would just, I, I would reiterate that uh, some people call this the thrice-holy psalm, and for the reasons that I've just given you. And uh, holiness is the only, if you want to call it an attribute, oh, I think it's better to think of it as his nature as opposed to an attribute. <coughs> it's only That is only spoken of in threefold love is not wrath is not righteousness is not but holy 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 is and um, certainly you re- probably remember in Isaiah uh, chapter 3 it says when he was standing <coughs> in that vision before the throne it says and one called out to another and said holy 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 is the Lord of hosts the whole earth is full of his glory and the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. You notice the trembling there is similar to the trembling that we see called for in verse uh, uh, one of uh, the Psalm. We also see the thrice holy proclamation in Revelation four, verse eight, where there's a vision of the (coughs) heavenly throne. And it said in verse eight of chapter four of Revelation, And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night do they not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And so this thrice holy concept uh, is taught multiple times in the Scripture, and I think this psalm is uh, reiterating that. So let's jump in and look at the details. Psalm 99, verses uh, 1 through 3 again. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He is enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth shake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted above all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. So we see here an immediate answer to that question that was raised in Psalm 88. What has happened to your promise to David? Uh, What happened to the kingdom of David? The people are calling out. And the answer is, the Lord is reigning. Let the people tremble. He has never stopped reigning. And this is talking about God's sovereign rule over everything, over all peoples, over the whole earth. So there is no Adam, Adam, in the universe that's not under his sovereign uh, reign so he is holy in his sovereign rule over all the peoples what is the result of this call they are to tremble we are to tremble before God he is enthroned above the cherubim let the earth shake so again the reality of God's sovereign rule and as we think about this as we meditate on it should cause some level of reverent trembling now I've talked about this before this is not uh, the trembling due to wrath to come we are free to that but we are never free of the reality that God is uh, beyond us transcendent that he is our creator and that he rules sovereignly over every uh, occasion that occurs in our lives over every person over everything that goes on in the universe. And as we contemplate that, if we contemplate it thoroughly and truly, it should cause us to be like Isaiah and tremble before the Lord. There is is a reverent trembling that is all we are still called to have. It says he's enthroned above the cherubim, let the earth shake. what is that reference to the cherubim? The cherubim are mentioned multiple times Uh, Throughout scripture, the first time is in the Garden of Eden where they are set up as uh, flaming angelic beasts, not beasts, beings with swords to protect uh, God's holy garden from sinful man re-entering. But this next time uh, that we we see it, uh, in particular in the history of Israel, is uh, above the Ark of the Covenant. They are set above the Ark of the Covenant and their wings form a uh, visible throne that God is to sit on. So uh, obviously, God is a spirit and doesn't sit on a physical throne, but that was the representation. Uh, the temple and the Ark of the Covenant and the cherubim were to uh, picture for us what's going on in heaven, that God is enthroned above the cherubim. These, these great uh, angelic beings are there Constantly serving him, and uh, they are pictured here as uh, his uh, his throne, and they are sitting uh, on top of the ark of the covenant. So at this point, what we've seen is in this section: God is transcendent; He's holy; He's above us. In in that regard, He's kind of scary; He's kind of uh, uh, forces terror into our hearts, and that that might be how we would quantify it as saying he's transcendent. But <clears throat> there is joy in verse 2, if we read that correctly, I think. The Lord is great in Zion. So we know that the Lord is transcendent, but he's also what we call eminent. He's with us closely. And so he has condescended to reign in Zion, in, and that's representing his church. Uh, so he is reigning in Zion with his people which should be great joy to us. So this great God, who is uh, sovereign over all things, reigns in Zion, and that should remind us of a uh, passage in Ephesians 1, where the great uh, uh, king of kings has been established on his throne. In Ephesians 1, 2, it says, <coughs> He put all things in subjection under his feet, and gave him as head of all things to the church. So the Lord has established his king in Zion in answer to the people's question. The Lord has established his king in Zion, and that king is sovereign over all things for the purpose of uh, protecting and raising up his church. So that should cause us to have uh, uh, great wonder and glory and um, uh, all of his... Uh, being as he reigns for his people in his church. Spurgeon says of this, of old the temple's sacred heel was the center of worship of the great king, and the place where his grandeur was most clearly beheld. His church is now his favored place. And we are also uh, educated from our uh, shorter catechism where it talks about Christ kingship, which is what this is speaking of. It says, how does Christ execute the office of king? Christ executed the office of king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and restraining and conquering all his, uh, his and our enemies. And so we see in this section the wonderful combination of God's transcendence and his eminence that he reigns for us to protect his church, to bring glory to himself, and it's all a call to worship because of his holy, sovereign rule. So uh, that's the question we should ask ourselves as we uh, close out with verse 3. Does his sovereign rule over all things for the glory of his church, does that draw us to worship? It should draw us to worship. It should cause us to say, Uh, praising his great and awesome name, holy is he, as it says in the last part of verse 3 there. And then moving on to uh, verse 4, I think this section speaks of his holy righteousness. Verse 4 says, the strength of the king loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. Holy is he. So earthly kings uh, love to talk about uh, their strength in wealth or domain or military powers. Our king of kings loves to talk about his strength in justice. And as we think about that, that should draw us to praise. We have a king of kings whose strength is... Uh, exercised toward justice. Not only does he do justice, but he loves justice. It's just part of who he is. He loves to do what is right. He loves to reward the good, and he loves to punish evil, to uh, recompense evil. So in his rule as sovereign king, his strength uh, is manifested in his love of justice, And uh, we should uh, uh, be drawn to praise and worship because that is true. Uh, We live in a world where we can see injustices all around us. Uh, We see it manifested uh, in our government at every level. We see it manifested in our neighborhoods, in our our own lives. But this Lord, this King of Kings, he exercises his strength in exercising justice because he loves it. It is just part of who he is. And so in his kingdom, no injustice will ultimately go unpunished and no good will go unrewarded. His justice is without blemish. (laughs) It goes on and it says... um, Exalt, in verse 5, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. What does that mean, at his footstool? Well, there's two things I think we can learn from this. One is kind of a secondary, which I'll mention first. Simply is that we, as we come before the king, we're coming at his footstool. Uh, Kings had thrones elevated, and they had footstools below them. So those that came in with their supplications, would come to the footstool. They would come, meaning they would come humbly because the king is to be exalted. And how much more so is the king of kings to be exalted? And so we come humbly before him. But the primary teaching, I believe, is talking about the footstool as in the uh, Ark of the Covenant, which I've already alluded to. The king, the uh, picture there is the Lord sitting on the wings of the cherubim with his feet on the footstool, which would have been the Ark of the Covenant, which is where his righteous representation was, his Ten Commandments. (coughs) So how do the people come to the presence of that king, that glorious king, uh, protected by those uh, uh, wonderful beings with flaming swords? Uh, And how do they come to a righteous king? Well, they come because of what's on top of the uh, Ark of the covenant which is the mercy seat and which was, is where the blood was brought in to the Holy of Holies. And of course, all of that represents Christ who came and died for us, his blood was spilt so that we are able to come before him uh, through his blood boldly and rejoicing. So that footstool uh, is referenced multiple times but sometimes it's referenced as pretty much the whole temple structure, but specifically it's, uh, I think, referenced to the uh, Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat on top of it. If you go to, you don't have to go there, but I'll read for you from 1 Chronicles 28.2, where it says, Then King David rose to his feet and said, Listen to me, my brethren, and my people. I had intended to build a permanent home for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God. So I made preparations to build it. So there we see a, a direct reference to the footstool of God and the, the Ark of the Covenant. So obviously what we learn from this, as it says, to come and worship at his footstool is that we come only through Jesus Christ, the blood spilt, so that we can come uh, to the Lord and his justice will not be perverted. Uh, we're speaking here about His righteousness, His justice, and it cannot be perverted. It's perfect. It's holy. So how is it that we sinners are able to come? Well, we have to come through the footstool, the picture of Christ, the picture of that blood, and that's why we pray in Christ's name, and that's why we say, any other method, any other religion, does not uh, is not uh, adequate to come before the thrice holy God. It must be coming. Through the footstool, which is the picture of Christ here. So in coming through that footstool, God's holy justice is not compromised. And it's the only way that it's not compromised. We have to come through Christ. And that, again, as we're called to in that last section, verse 5, is we are to worship because of that. That should cause us to want to worship and call out, holy is he. And we move on to the last section, which is longer and a little bit more complex, but I think it does meet the same uh, format that I have established here. Verse 6 through 9, Moses and Aaron were among the priests, and Samuel was among those who called on his name. They called on the Lord, and he answered them. He spoke to them in the pillar of cloud. He kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, and yet an avenger of their evil deeds. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill, for holy is the Lord our God. So, again, uh, I believe this is calling us to worship because of his holiness, as we see in the last phrases of that section. And, It's particularly talking about the holiness of His mercy and His grace in caring for His people. (laughs) And we see there that the first thing that is done in verse 6 is He's given three examples of uh, people who were, uh, in the loose uh, use of the term mediators, prayerful mediators for God's people. Moses, Aaron, and Samuel called upon His name. So. They were men who, I I could give you several examples for each one of them, where they mediated for the people, interceded for the people, and kept uh, God's judgment from coming, which was, of course, uh, picturing the, the mediator that was yet to come. Moses, in Exodus 32, mediated at the episode of the golden calf. God was ready to destroy them. Moses mediated, prayed to the Lord, and the Lord relented. Aaron, uh, one example is in number six, mediated at the congregation's rebellion at, uh, associated with Korah's rebellion and kept the Lord's hand from destroying them all. He did destroy several of them, but uh, Aaron rushed out into the midst with the uh, incense and mediated for the people. Samuel, one example of Samuel, uh, he prayed for deliverance from the Philistines' oppression brought on to due to the people's idolatry, and indeed the Lord saved them from the Philistines. There's other, every one of them, I can give you other examples where they mediated for the people, but the point here is that God graciously set up these mediators uh, for the people uh, so that they would pray for the people, and God would hear, and God would relent in his uh, judgments. And of course all that is picturing the, gracious dealing with God's people by sending the mediator, Christ Jesus. (laughs) These people were typological mediators, picturing Jesus, but uh, God was gracious in dealing with this old uh, covenant people and setting up these uh, mediators uh, to represent Christ. Uh, He also was gracious to them in that he spoke to them. He spoke to Moses, Aaron, and he spoke to Samuel, And he gave them words to do, to obey. And as they obeyed, the Lord is gracious uh, to deal with the people. They kept his testimonies. And God was gracious to forgive the people. But he's also, it says in verse 8, he answered them. He was a forgiving God to them, yet he was also an avenger of their evil deeds. Well, was that gracious too? Uh, Is it gracious that God avenges their evil deeds? That's a little bit harder. <laughs> but yes, uh, <clears throat> I follow several commentators who uh, believe that is true. That what is happening here is that the Lord should be seen as gracious here in purging out sins. Uh, some people uh, believe he's talking specifically about Moses' sins and Aaron's sins and Samuel's sins. But I think he's probably talking about the congregation, which would have included those mediators. But he was uh, purging out their sins, and he did that through temporal uh, judgments. Uh, Spurgeon says on this topic, So to forgive sin as at the same time to express abhorrence of it is the particular glory of God and is best seen in the atonement of our Lord Jesus. Reader, are you a believer? Then your sin is forgiven you but also surely you are a child of God and the rod of paternal discipline will be laid upon you if you walk not close to God. You only, He quotes scripture here. He says, you only I have known of all the nations of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for your iniquities. <clears throat> so we see here the picture of a loving father who is gracious to forgive our sins, but he's also gracious to purge our sins, to sanctify. Some people see this as, Forgiveness, justification, uh, purging, sanctification. Uh, and this is, this is not a foreign concept to us in Scripture. Uh, it is often spoken of, and I'll give you a few passages here, where it is seen as gracious that the Lord uh, afflicts us for a time to purge sin from us. Psalm 119, 67, 68 says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. You are good to do good and teach me your statutes. It is good that I was afflicted, that I may may learn your statutes. Uh, And of course the common one in Hebrews 12, verse 10 and 11 says, For they were disciplined for a short time, (coughs) as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. And finally, uh, one more, Revelation 3.19 says, For those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. <coughs> so, I do believe that what's happening in this last stanzas is that we have the uh, holiness of God as manifested in His grace and mercy to His people shown forth in uh, His mediation, as pictured in those three men of the Old Testament, in his answering of prayers, uh, in his giving of his word, in his forgiveness, and in his sanctification. So, quick summary then, is uh, in all of these things, we are called to uh, holy worship of God because he is holy. Uh, And summarizing then, what we see in this passage is his holiness in sovereign rule His holiness in righteousness and His holiness in dealing uh, with us graciously and mercifully. And so what is the result of that? We are to extol Him, lift Him up, magnify Him, and worship Him because He is holy. (coughs) Okay, I was kind of determined to try to end and give you time for questions or comments, which I actually managed to do today. So, Are there any Questions or comments about that psalm? Nothing. All right. <coughs> the thrice holy psalm. Let's close in prayer. Father, we do thank you that you are uh, gracious and merciful to us, to send Christ the mediator, <coughs> that we might not only uh, tremble before you, but we also uh, tremble in joy that we are able to come before you uh, knowing that you are a loving Father. <clears throat> and so help us to keep that balance, to know that we are always your creatures, always uh, at a distance from you as far as uh, you being the creator and we being the creatures, and yet we are also drawn close to you uh, in Christ, and so we may come before you uh enjoy uh, embolden that uh, we know that you love us as your father we ask now that we would come to you and worship both in holy reverence and in holy joy in Christ's name we pray amen